I'm Adam Coleman, and welcome to the Cosmic Library, where we find anarchic comedy and serious wisdom in the Hall of the Monkey King. We're in the third episode of our season on Journey to the West, the 16th century classic Chinese novel. It's a novel about a spiritual quest, but it's funny. It's a comedy. The rascally monkey king accompanies the monk Tripitaka through all kinds of adventures and misadventures in pursuit of Buddhist texts. But the adventure also happens in light of Taoist and Confucian traditions. The monkey king seeks to cultivate himself toward immortality in Taoist terms, and he finds himself confronted by the rules and structure of a social order with Confucian characteristics. Through it all, he makes his way mischievously, so there's real profundity, but also comedy. What do we do with these mixed moods? Let's start with an example. Julia Lovell reads from her translation. It's a scene of funny resistance to serious threat, a scene of comedy and horror in which comedy wins. I'd like to read a passage when Monkey, uh, somewhat in the middle of the quest, is interacting with a divine messenger disguised as a woodcutter. And this messenger is bringing the pilgrims news of some appalling human-eating mountain trolls in the neighbourhood. And I went for this one because it captures this um, unstoppable sassiness of monkey in the face of exceptional perils and torments. So here we go. The passage starts with a brief warning report by this divine messenger who's disguised himself as a woodcutter. Deep in this mountain lies the lotus flower cave, home to two monsters determined to have you for dinner. What luck, responded Monkey cheerfully. Do you know how they plan to eat us? I beg your pardon, asked the nonplussed woodcutter. I see you're inexperienced in such matters. If they start with the head, I'll be dead in one bite. All good. After that, they can fry, sauté, braise or boil me. Wouldn't matter one bit. But if they start with my feet, well, I might still be alive even when they get to my pelvis. And that would be literally a pain. You're overthinking this. The monsters will catch you, pop you in a steamer, then eat you whole. Better still. Just a touch of stuffiness, then it'll all be over. Beware, flippant monkey, beware. These monsters have five treasures of incomparable magic power. Beware. And then the passage goes on with monkey refusing to take the threat seriously in front of the woodcutter and dispatching him back to heaven. Inevitably, the challenge and the ordeal that follow are redoubtable and almost result in monkey being turned into slime inside a magic calabash. But as is always the way, he finds a way out. Talking to Xiaofei Tian, I was curious to know about elements of humor within the spiritual tradition behind Journey to the West. You know, like what Buddha teaches, you know, he uses all kinds of means to teach. Definitely humor would be one of the very effective means of converting, of getting a message out and and through to people. In native tradition, though, I would say that, you know, you can see that in pre-Qin texts, 4th, 5th century BCE. So in the philosophical kind of uh, 
texts or in thinkers like uh, Zhuang Zi, for example, there are a lot of parables. And so in those parables, often you can also see that kind of uh, humor. With Julia Lovell, I brought up the following about Journey to the West humor. There's play and there's also a kind of pragmatic attitude toward these belief systems, toward these deities. There's so many passages like this, but early on, Monkey encounters a Taoist master. Uh, Taoist master asks, what is it that you want to learn from me? Monkey says, a little Taoism would do nicely, master. So already there's this kind of, you know, jokey, casual way. A little Taoism would do nicely. The master says to to Monkey, there are 360 subcategories of Taoism. Each can lead to enlightenment. Which do you wish to study? Whichever you think best, Monkey answered. How about the division of art? Suggested Subodhi. What would that involve? Sustaining immortals, divining with yarrow stalks, and learning to pursue good and shun evil. Will it make me live forever? Monkey wanted to know. Not a chance, Sabodi replied. Then I'll have nothing to do with it, Monkey responded. It's playful, and it's funny, and it's earthy, and it's also, it's very much um, connected to the kind of practical, it's just a, a very grounded attitude toward spirituality. Yes, I think Monkey in particular has uh, quite a grab bag attitude or sort of pick pick and choose your own approach to spirituality. It's important to bear in mind that literary critics have been arguing about the spiritual religious elements of the book for centuries. So some have always maintained that the book has uh, actually very intricate religious design, that monkey is an allegory for the human mind. So in this reading, monkey stands for the instability of human genius in need of discipline, namely the trials of the pilgrimage, to realise its potential for good. The earliest Buddhist sutras translated into Chinese analogize the human mind as a monkey, as restless, erratic, volatile. And by the end of the first millennium CE, the phrase monkey of the mind, uh, xin yuan, had become a stock literary allusion for this restless human mind. And that was how the preface to the 1592 edition interpreted monkey as, as 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 this spirit of the mind which can produce or indeed subdue demons, real and imagined, as the mind seeks enlightenment. This message is quite clearly stated towards the end of the prologue when monkey is waging war on heaven. The omniscient narrator says, with discipline, monkey might become a force for supernatural good. Without it, he was pure animal, a wrecking ball in heaven. I'd agree that this reading definitely clarifies one of the themes of the novel as being about how to harness the extraordinary talents of this flawed mind monkey of human genius, how to harness these talents for virtuous ends. And with monkey in the novel, this process of disciplining takes on a very physical as well as a spiritual internal form. Quite early on in their relationship, Tripitaka, with the help of one of the senior Buddhist deities, a female deity called Guanyin, 
So Gwen Yin and Tripitaka together, they trick Monkey into putting on a magic golden hoop onto his head. If Monkey acts up or is too violent or reckless on the quest, all Tripitaka needs to do is to chant a spell that makes the hoop squeeze Monkey's head agonisingly and Tripitaka doesn't stop until Monkey has promised, has pledged in some way to mend his violent, uncontrolled ways. Julia Lovell also describes how Journey to the West draws from history, from social reality. The novel does reflect the dynamic literary cultural context of 16th century China uh, ruled by the Ming dynasty. The Ming began in 1368 under a ruthless centralising dictator and that aspiration towards political control survived through the rest of the dynasty but also proved hard to realise. So from the middle of the 16th to the 17th centuries, the dynasty suffered from political and institutional paralysis, really, due to a series of eccentric, willful, self-indulgent, sometimes reclusive emperors. And the actual limits to central control, this gap between theory and practice, if you like, made room for an extraordinary cultural and social fluorescence. There are some other things going on at the same time. Between the 14th and early 17th centuries, China's population almost tripled. Education, literacy and commerce surged. China at the time is a thriving economy and culture. It's the centre of the global luxuries trade. And the rest of the world is willing to part with a lot of silver to buy China's signature exports. And quite a lot of this prosperity goes into publishing and demand for books booms. So China at the time is the world's largest state, about 150 million people living within it, uh, within a territory the size of Europe. It's, it's, it's diverse, but it's also held together by a single written language. And this population growth, you see, fuels new movement of people, of information and ideas, with, to an extent, old social and cultural hierarchies being undermined. Um, you see a notable mingling, I think, between different social classes and different cultural elements, such as elite, folk or urban cultures. And as part of this, uh, new, more popular vernacular literary forms flourished. And that is the context that Journey to the West emerges out of. Kaiser Guo explained some of the links between the Ming Dynasty, when Journey to the West was written, and the Tang Dynasty, the time of the Journey West. I wondered about the dynamic between looking outward from China and existing hierarchies within China. So if you look at each of these dynasties, these are both 300-year-long dynasties, right? You know, Tang lasts from 618 to 907, and, and Ming from 1368 to 1644. So there's, you know, shy of 300 years. So each of them has periods of outward-facing and inward-facing. If you look at, you know, the Shengshi and Kaiyuan periods in, in early Tang, uh, you know, up like 712 to 755, that's probably, you know, the, the most outward facing. You could, you know, go a little bit before that and already see that kind of cosmopolitan element during the reign of who's effectively the founding emperor. He's actually a son of the founding emperor, but uh, during Li Shimin's time, you were already seeing that. Uh, but, you know, by 
after the Anlushan Rebellion, it's very, very inward-facing, right? There's a, a real repudiation. Everyone talks about this Hanyu uh, memorial on uh, opposing uh, this fetishization of this Buddhist bone artifact that's going to be, you know, brought into China. And he goes off on a tear about how, you know, Buddhism should be condemned because it is foreign, right? Ming is the same. I mean, Ming has periods of, of real outward facing. You have the Zhenghe voyages during the early part of the Ming, you know, during the Yongle reign. And then, again, a real inward turn later. They're more parallel to each other rather than in, in tension with one another. And now let's consider history from another angle. Julia Lovell describes here the background for historical attitudes to fiction. In the traditional elite hierarchies of Chinese literature, fiction and drama were generally seen as inferior to poetry or essays. But across the 16th century, you see this very conspicuous flourishing of fiction and drama and new works in these forms increasingly drew on everyday human experience and exchanges as raw material for sophisticated, ambitious literary narratives. So in this respect, you can also see this uh, new flowering of uh, fiction and drama as part of these broader ideas about the possible sagehood of ordinary people articulated by men like Wang Yangming. A really important point to make is that a lot of this new fiction and drama through the 16th century is written in an early modern vernacular. And this is quite significantly different from the highly compressed, elusive classical Chinese used for the traditionally more elite genres of poetry, essay writing, history and political communications. So the vernacular used in uh, fiction of the 16th century is it's more relaxed, it's more expansive, it's more lively, it opens itself up quite easily to uh, extremely diverse characterization, all sorts of everyday human experience. In addition to Journey to the West, another three of the six uh, so-called master novels of imperial China, uh, again written in this early modern vernacular, were also published during the 16th century. Uh, So you also see uh, the publication of The Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is a recounting of the civil war into which China plunged after the fall of the Han Dynasty in 220 AD. There's The Water Margin, which is a picaresque tale of 12th century outlaws. And there's The Plum in the Golden Vase, which is a sexually explicit chronicle of intrigue in a wealthy Ming household. And this new vernacular literature, either in fiction or in drama, had really a fresh expressive power. It could say things about an increasingly complex reality that poetry and essays in classical Chinese seemed less able to do. So this new vernacular fiction could mix registers. Um, It could combine high-flown poetic imagery and lyricism with fantasy, with military action and kung fu, uh, with domestic drama, and also, obviously, in the case of Journey to the West, with sort of huge amounts of humour and comedy. To Max Mormon, I asked if the collision of different spiritual traditions itself causes some of the comedy in Journey to the West, which, of course, also always brings to mind the journey that inspired it. 
that of the historical monk Xuanzang, a.k.a. Tripitaka. Xuanzang's pilgrimage account is terribly dry. There are interesting stories in it, but there's nothing really funny or, or humorous or even playful about it. The text that Xuanzang himself wrote was composed after his journey and commissioned by the emperor, who wanted to know, basically, all of the political geography and demographic details of the neighboring countries. It's a document that's produced by people who are only interested in the data, not in any sort of humor that happens along the way. The humor that happens along the way and the elaborations of the narrative that happen along the way, they follow soon after Xuanzang's text. In fact, you know, in addition to Xuanzang's own account, there's a biography, a hagiography, a biography, a life of him that's written by his immediate disciples uh, very soon after his death. So just a few decades after his text, his journey is retold in a much sort of fuller narrative by his disciple Hui Li in a text that's called The Life of Xuanzang, which itself is a text that's included in the Buddhist canon and is like Xuanzang's own record, a kind of a parallel record, but it's far more developed. And it's one in which Xuanzang becomes this sort of heroic figure who's now going on a quest. So you get that quality of the early history of Tripitaka that you find in the journey to the West, you get that kind of sort of much more elaborate and folkloric narrative of this heroic pilgrim uh, soon after Xuanzang's own narrative. But his, his narrative, his record, the first one, is pretty dry. So beyond that text, I was wondering, where do we see humor in Buddhist literature, Buddhist art, in addition to Journey to the West? In the literature and the art that comes out of the more elaborated and popular narrative of Xuanzang's journey, for hundreds of years before this text was written as complete as it was, there were all kinds of popular tales, dramas, cave paintings, all kinds of evidence for popular literary narratives and uh, performance narratives, too, that start off from this story. And you actually start to get the animal figures, like the monkey, that becomes a companion to the pilgrim. So in that sense, there was, there is a kind of a humorous or a comical and certainly kind of a folksy storytelling quality in the earlier versions of the narrative. But it's interesting because the Buddhism that comes out of Xuanzang as an historical figure is an incredibly intellectual and sophisticated kind of philosophical, almost a kind of Chinese Buddhist scholasticism that codifies some of the different traditions in Indian Buddhist philosophy. So it's not particularly comic stuff. The traditions that came out of Xuanzang and the many texts he translated and the texts, the kinds of texts, the consciousness only texts that he was an expert in. I mean, he's sort of like a sort of like the Thomas Aquinas or something. But what happens with Journey to the West is this 
just fantastic playfulness, which seems to also be playing with Buddhist and Taoist ideas and Buddhist and Taoist traditions. And in the traditions that it's playing with, like the Chan or in Japanese Zen tradition that comes out of the Prajnaparamita, the wisdom literature tradition that is often sort of cited and quoted in the passages of Journey to the West when they're talking about the Heart Sutra and when they're talking about mind and meditation and uh, the monkey of the mind and controlling the mind monkey and that sort of thing. In China, it's coming out of a Chan Buddhist tradition in which there is a lot of humor. That is, in which sort of humor and playfulness and overturning assumed dualities and things like that, paradox, is very much part of the literary and the performative and the humorous tradition. In Taoism, too, I mean, the Taoism of the Zhuangzi, for example, is very, very funny. It's very intellectually playful, and it's it's full of humor. I don't know if you've read the Zhuangzi, but it's sort of like if you'd like crossed Wittgenstein with Groucho Marx. I mean, yeah. it's very yeah. it's very heady and it's very funny at the same time. And it kind of it's effective through its humor. It's trying to surprise and overcome your assumptions. It does that through humor. And Max Moorman also read from the Zhuangzi. The fish trap exists because of the fish. Once you've gotten the fish, you can forget the trap. The rabbit snare exists because of the rabbit. Once you've gotten the rabbit, you can forget the snare. Words exist because of meaning. Once you've gotten the meaning, you can forget the words. And then comes the kicker, the punchline. Where can I find a man who has forgotten words so I can have a word with him? I mean, the first part is the sort of is the sort of the philosophy of language part. Yeah. It ends with with a punchline. You know, you can almost see him like shaking his cigar. Where can I find a man who's <laughs> forgotten words so I can have a word with him? It it speaks in a kind of language that's that's inherently humorous, but it's using humor to make these, you know, theoretical points. What do we do in this class that I teach? You know, they read the Analects and they read the Tao Te Ching and then they read the Shunzi and then they read the Zhuangzi and they don't know what to do. They're like, they're almost embarrassed to say or admit that, wait, this is funny, right? Because they think it has to be, it can't be because it's, you know, it's serious thought. But it is funny. It's funny. It works because it's funny. I mean, humor is intelligence. The journey to the West has that quality in it, that playfulness, you know, but purposeful playfulness meant to have a kind of effect on the reader. It's not just destructive play. It's not just like anarchic, let's break things kind of play. It is trying to trying to make something. When they finally get to the Buddhist holy land and they get all of the scriptures that they're searching for, right? The arhats are like, wait, you guys didn't give us enough kickback. So uh, I'll tell you what, we're we're just we're going to pull a fast one on you. We're going to give you all the the sutras without any words written on them, just the blank pages, right? And then there's the scene where they discover that oh my god, 
they've got the wordless teachings, which of course, within the Chan tradition, that's the true teaching is the wordless teaching. But but it becomes this kind of comic routine that's playing with exactly the same kind of issues that that passage from the Zhuangzi is dealing with, you know? Once you've got the meaning, you can forget the words, right? You don't need to carry the words with you anymore. They're just something that you use to get you there. And then it, it becomes a full sort of vaudeville routine in the journey to the West. And now I'm going to ask once again that you go look at our newsletter and possibly subscribe to it over at cosmiclibrary.substack.com. Once you subscribe, you'll get occasional newsletters with reflections on some of the books we're talking about with quotes from some of the people on these shows. Our guests this time have included Julia Lovell, whose Journey to the West translation is titled Monkey King, D. Max Mormon, scholar of Buddhism at Columbia, Xiaofei Tian, scholar of Chinese literature at Harvard, and Kaiser Guo, who hosts the Seneca podcast. Thank you, as always, to LitHub. I'm Adam Coleman. Be sure to come back for the next installment on martial arts, transcendence, and cinema. Cinema.